happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 197. We are just three episodes away from hitting the 200 mark for November 11th, 2020. Happy Veterans Day to all of you, including to Dr. Fryer. Uh, this is EdTech. I've already said what episode it is. My name is Jason Eifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in very snowy Missoula, Montana. And joining me this evening, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I am joining you from not snowy uh, central Oklahoma, where we had a early I, you know, like earliest ice storm ever that I think anybody remembers, but back into our sixties and seventies and, uh, we had some folks in shorts today. It was kind of crazy. So I am the innovation, uh, technology innovation. What am I? I've said, I haven't said this in a while. I, I teach Spanish, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, and I am teaching Spanish along with media literacy um, with fifth and sixth graders. And hello, Peggy George. We're glad you're back. And Jason, you took the week off allegedly last week. How did that go? And did you um, have much, much offline time? That's what I want to know. Well, um, so yeah, I did take uh, last week off from work and then we decided that we would also extend that to the podcast so I could try to, to stay offline. Um, I will say that my master plan of kind of, you know, staying connected through Tuesday and then backing off, uh, from a connection to the world didn't work out quite as planned, but I did, didn't spend a ton of time online. I generally stayed away from work. I did get some reading in, um, I'm kind of working on a side project right now that's kind of educationally related that I was able to uh, uh, do what I do or love to do, which is to read about history. So I'm currently working on a little something that has to do with uh, teaching of the prohibition in uh, the 1920s and 30s. And so I read some great uh, works there last week. Um, but unfortunately, national news did force me to kind of ping back in uh, through about Saturday or so. You could probably do the math about what I was kind of keeping an eye on uh, as things played out. But I wouldn't quite say I'm tan. Um, but I am rested a little bit and, uh, certainly was ready to get back into work, uh, in my day job. But, um, as you, uh, we've mentioned a couple times in the podcast, I'm still not cutting my hair. I'm, I'm, I'm in my, um, you know, wisely self-imposed quarantine here in Missoula. COVID's kind of raging in Montana right now. So sure as too. I am an immune, immune, immunely suppressed American, um, I have been, uh, you know, very careful not to leave my home office, but, it's all good, and I'm thrilled to be back. I got to know, though, define snowy Montana. Are we talking three inches? Uh, it dumped a foot? a foot here last night. Wow. So, yeah, it, yeah, it was more – there was two and a half feet in Great Falls, which was a record uh, in 48 hours. We didn't get that a couple days ago, but then last night uh, uh, I have a lot of friends and colleagues in northern Idaho, uh, Coeur d'Alene in particular, and I was talking to a colleague there yesterday, and he had let me know that – they had been experiencing a lot of snow dump. And then at about 10 o'clock last night, uh, my phone said that there was a snow warning. And I woke up this morning to, I'd say, about a foot of snow on the ground. So Wow. Wow. Yep. Well, your, audio, your audio is coming through great. It is, you're, you're a little bit fuzzy for me on the video, but that, that could be oh. me. So I'm actually going to open up the old... Google Wi-Fi app and give myself priority here on my device. So 
we'll see if that affects it. And Peggy, maybe you can let us know in the chat if how that is. Well, Jason, it's been a couple weeks. Maybe we've forgotten. What what is it that we do on this show? Well, the EdTech Situation Room is a mostly once-a-week podcast where we go through the current topics in technology and kind of shoot them through an education lens to try to maybe make some sense of all the many things going on in the world. And this week, our topics will include education. I'm sorry. They always include education. Election 2020. Uh, there's some Apple news I heard that we probably want to talk about. A lot of interesting things that happened actually today uh, in Google world. Uh, we have some maker stuff to talk about, a little bit of, uh, of our tech correction topic, um, AI. And then, of course, we'll end this week with our geeks of the week and stuff that we've been geeking out over in the past couple of days. So, Dr. Fryer, where should we start tonight? Oh gosh. So we're going to need to say a few things about this little event that happened to last week on Tuesday, I think, which is, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I, th- and we are not a political show. We say this kind of every time when we touch on, on issues that, that, uh, connect to the election. Um, I guess I'll, uh, start with an Ed Surge article that was on November 7th. And it just said that the U.S. election underscores the need for teaching news literacy in our schools. Um, I had the opportunity this last weekend, actually it was on Friday, we uh, had a conference day and um, that was uh, well-timed because the Northeast Council for Media Literacy had a lovely online conference with about 300 folks. And there's no way I would have been going to that in person if it wasn't for COVID. Uh, international audience, it was fantastic. Uh, we used the app WOVA, which I have used before at OU, um, that they have an inter- interactive learning institute, which they've had each year. I don't know if that will happen again, um, I think usually in February. But anyway, just fantastic. And, um, you know, that... That conference is all about media literacy. This article is underscoring the need for news literacy. Uh, in some of the sessions, folks were talking about, you know, how fantastic journalism can be, uh, developing the skills of journalism where, you know, students are vetting sources and they're, they're, you know, needing to establish credibility and trust. <clears throat> I don't think we're going to be media literacy educating ourselves out of the proverbial hole that we've sort of dug ourselves in. Um, but I do think it is important. And, you know, this, this article is, uh, is an editorial, of course, by Liz Ramos, <clears throat> but it is uh, kind of an op-ed. Um, you know, but it is, it is super important to help students, uh, be able to identify misinformation. What I'll say, and this is also, <laughs> just coming off of some Facebook interactions on my page lately. And, and then we have, we had a great discussion last night actually with our parents about the social dilemma, that documentary that aired in September on Netflix. We literally have people living in different worlds of facts, like different realities. And it is, it can be really apparent and, and, and was recently for me on Facebook um, so yes, media literacy is important, but there are some, some deeper, you know, underlying issues as well that, you know, are not, are not going to really be fixed, quote unquote, you know, with, with media literacy education. But there, are, in that article, I think it was the one, uh, where they were talking about, um, you know, there's some, some mandates, there's some, some proposed bills and things like that to try to, to require media literacy. I'll share one other one and then kick it to you. This is an education week article, uh, by Madeline Will on November 6th. What teachers should do when QAnon 
conspiracy theories come to class. Um, one of the realities is that controversial topics can be really hard to address. Um, I don't know that we had, we used the article, uh, two weeks ago, or maybe we did mention it, but, you know, there's, there's some cases now that have been pretty well documented of just, you know, teachers having a Black Lives Matter sign up in their classroom and, and bringing up a topic and then, you know, some, have, some parents having some real backlash against them. So it is a tough time to talk about controversial issues. Um, we certainly need to keep in mind what is developmentally appropriate for, for kids. Um, this article in Education Week actually includes some interesting surveys, which happened right uh, before November. It was at the, at the end of October, you know, showing that um, a lot of teachers are just not aware of what, you know, QAnon is. Um, and, you know, that was like 35% of, of folks that were responding to it. Um, and it's just really challenging to to address these kinds of issues. So I'm going to, again, because we just started our next trimester, um, have a conspiracy theory unit with my sixth graders, but we're going to be focusing on the Apollo moon landing. And one of the things that I think is really good in, and I think it's that education week article is we shouldn't just encourage kids to weigh the evidence. We shouldn't pretend that every conspiracy theory that's out there uh, is, is, is um, deserving of, you know, legitimate academic, comparisons and, and research <clears throat> because in the case of QAnon specifically, and it's become this sort of gargantuan massive conspiracy theory. Um, it's, you know, the core, the core piece of it, when you say it out loud is just crazy. It absolutely is a, a fruit loop conspiracy theory. And so, um, I'm using that, those, the, that term, which is not an official term, Fruit Loop conspiracy theory, you know, to talk about some things. There are real conspiracy theories, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff out there, but it certainly is important that if we're going to prepare kids for literacy in the world, that we're going to talk to them about how they are verifying, um, you know, sources of information and how do they decide who to trust. So thankfully, I think Dr. Knife for last week, you were able to resolve all the mis and disinformation issues facing us in education. So what, what, uh, when you went up on the mountain, what, what did you receive? <laughs> what did you receive on the, was it, was it, was it an e-ink tablet or what kind of tablets did you <laughs> receive the message on? Um, I'd love a good e-ink tablet, but, um, so I, so what I would say is that, and as I mentioned in the past, I was really leery 20 years ago with this notion that, and, and I have to say, I am not, I, I, I am still philosophically a content teacher from the standpoint of I am a history teacher and government teacher by training. That's what I spent my uh, 14 years in the classroom doing. And, um, I would tell you that there is a, there, there is a narrative that belongs in that, that, that classroom, whereas I have pushed back on the notions that we don't need to teach content in history and government classrooms because the students have access to unlimited content. I don't believe that to be true. I didn't believe that to be true 20 years ago. I don't believe that to be true today, in part because the internet itself is an unreliable narr narrator of the truth. Right now, there's something to be said about that there are varying views of history, that there are varying sources of history, but I do believe that a running narrative inside of a classroom is an important piece uh, of information that needs to be shared uh, uh, with students. And so when I hear about teachers saying things like, we just need, te uh, te need to teach kids to be good information consumers, and then it's all good, that presumes the internet's not broken. And I do believe the internet is vastly broken in that 
that it, one of the reasons why I personally love the internet is because it gives everyone a microphone. But one of the things that terrifies me about the internet is that it gives everyone a microphone. And so we need to start thinking about how can we balance back and forth? Like we don't, we don't, we don't go to science classrooms and say, you don't need to teach science content. Just send them out to the internet and teach them how to be good consumers of science content. I think the same should be true in social studies and other content areas as well, because there is some things that are probably not very disputable in the historical narrative and in the government narrative. Now, that said, I will tell you that when I was a teacher of conspiracy theories, uh, I uh, taught uh, the Apollo moon landing conspiracy theory. I taught the JFK assassination conspiracy theory. Um, I taught things that were less conspiracy theories, but controversial history. Uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson's uh, uh, interactions with Sally Hemings was something we talked about uh, quite a bit. It was mostly accepted history, but there was some controversy there in regards to the narrative and trusting historical sources. But that, that's, that's the way we need to approach these things. We have to balance, I think, the teaching of, of, of how to evaluate sources and also how to look at a variety of sources with a, I think, a story, right? Or a, a running narrative of how this all fits together. And there are things that are just plainly not true, right? That there is, that the preponderance of historical evidence says that X, Y, and Z uh, is true or is not true. And I think that that narrative belongs in a classroom. But the problem we're running into right now is that, uh, and it, I'm, I'm particularly talking about social studies classrooms, is that things that really 25 years ago weren't considered to be uh, uh, controversial or suddenly getting, um, I, I think, a lot of pushback uh, from parents to believe that that uh, that that schools are trying to indoctrinate their kiddos uh, in order uh, to do X. I, I do not believe that schools are indoctrinating kids in, in history classes, but the, this notion of somehow talking about uh, are the, the, the shortcomings of our nation's long history is teaching people to dislike our history. I strongly push back against that notion. What I love about being an American is that we can own up to our mistakes and truly keep our mission of becoming a more perfect union, right? Those three words to me define the American experience, that we're always striving for a more perfect union. That means that, that we have to take some time to evaluate what's going on, uh, 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 whether it's 200 years ago or yesterday, and then strive to be better, right? And in fact, if anything else, more perfect is the way I try to approach my life, too, that, that I have plenty of shortcomings, but tomorrow I hope to be a little better than, than I was today. Now, when when you say, Wes, that, uh, and I, I was uh, reading through part of this, this QAnon conspiracy article, um, what's dangerous, maybe that's not the right word, what's concerning, what's challenging about this notion is I do think that uh, uh, no matter what you tell some folks, no matter what you what truth you speak or what sources you bring in or wh whether you're asking folks to be critical about where they're getting their information, we are in a kind of a strange era of American history where low information sources are starting to dominate a lot of people's news diets. And I don't know, I don't know how we get away from that. And um, I want to talk about 
problem is all this stuff starts to meld together, right? But uh, we oftentimes talk about the tech correction in our, uh, our podcast. This is a notion that we're starting to try to figure out where tech fits now that we know it's that the picture is not entirely rosy. Um, but I want to I want to kind of insert another article in here for a second. This is from the New York Times uh, today, um, and this is about something that's been going on over the last uh, uh, a couple of months. But uh, it's fact checked on Facebook and Twitter. Conservatives are switching their apps. Um, and it's talking about, in particular, Parler, which is a new, I want to call it a Twitter alternative, but I don't think that's a fair, it kind of looks like Twitter. In fact, I got on Parler today. That's the reason why I'm mentioning this. I spent, I had today off for Veterans Day, and so I spent part of the day um, kind of playing around on the Internet. So I'm on Parler, and it is, it's, it, 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 it advertises itself as, um, the, the, the free speech alternative to social media, right? Because your free speech is, is, is being minimized when you go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram is, is the claim of, of, of parlor advocates and you won't, you won't have your, 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 uh, uh, your views squashed on parlor. So the, the thing that's interesting to me about this is that I think this what's proves so challenging about teaching in, in 2020, because if we do find that social media or web search or anyone steps in and tries to be an arbiter of information, right? Twitter has been slapping warnings on President Trump's tweets about the election. Facebook has been adding interpretive information to various posts and shutting down conspiracy theory groups. Uh, Twitter has been pushing out news links. Uh, they stopped advertising. All the major players stopped advertising uh, in, in the days I think in some cases those those uh, uh, ads are still blocked or heavily regulated by the the places. What people are doing is just going and finding other places uh, to connect with others that believe whether their views are mainstream or not. And this highlights the challenge I think of our information, unlimited information society is that it's not hard to start an alternative app. And my guess is is that. Parlor doesn't look like it, 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 it's that complex of a website. In fact, uh, I'll be honest, you could probably uh, uh, go on any sort of freelance uh, uh, a website, hire some coders for well under $5,000 that could put up probably not a totally secure website, but at least a, a, an alternative that looks kind of Facebooky, Twittery in its nature. And you could host whoever you like uh, to connect whoever you like. And so... Um, I think this be, is a moving target for teachers. I think this is an incredible challenge in 2020, and it will continue to be a challenge. We've talked about the past, whether government regulation is the answer here. Um, it may be, but what Parler suggests to me is that the self-regulation of, of, of these technologies is probably not going to do it because if Twitter starts labeling things that are, and, and if this is controversial, I guess it's controversial. If Twitter's labeling things that are clearly countered in the mainstream news narrative as, as not factual or at least challenged in its notion, and that's such a damning thing that people want to move to a, you know, Twitter-like atmosphere, um, I, it, it, it's going to be rough out there. And I think that we have a lot more fighting to do and a lot more thinking and innovating to do before this is resolved. 
obviously we could spend the whole show talking about this. I have a couple it, thoughts and it, another article. We almost, we almost I, just did. So I know, I know we want to get to Apple. We got, and this Google stuff, I didn't even get to see that today. So I'll assure y'all we're not going to, we're not going to talk about this the entire time, but I think that we are, this is like, as we, you know, Jason, and I get together almost every week and we look, look at this crystal ball and read these articles and put these dots together. It seems like with the 5g build out of infrastructure that we may be at a very big, uh, turn, not, I'm trying to think of a different word besides turning point, inflection point, uh, in the, in the global infrastructure of the internet, because, uh, we really are kind of the West versus China in terms of that technology. And I think it remains to be seen how much that's going to affect the interoperability of the internet and some of the basic core, like things, technology standards that that have undergirded the internet and made it what it is today. Similarly, you know, I, I wonder how much we're going to, if we will become fractured also, you know, in terms of social media, one of the things that makes these platforms, um, so toxically, uh, so to have such toxic potential in terms of misinformation and disinformation or information pollution, which I like that term a lot, uh, is the fact that we are, so many of us are on the same platform and we're not fractured and we're, we're looking, you know, at the, at the same things. So I'll throw one other article in there. Uh, and this is one from the, um, from NPR and it's, uh, from November 8th. It's called the next 2020 election fight convincing Trump supporters that he lost. And this is by Miles Parks. And I'm going to read a quotation from this. And before I do, this is kind of like saying, I told you so, because we've been talking about the tech correction and elections and disinformation and, and reading some sources that say we didn't see anything yet in 2016 compared to what's coming. And so this is the quotation, which is pretty sobering from the article. Uh, this is from Alex Stamos, who is director of the Stanford Internet Observatory and was formerly Facebook's chief security officer. He said, quote, and this is talking about what's coming out of current White House of the United States and from a lot of Republican leaders, quote, this is the most intense online disinformation event in U.S. history. And the pace of what we have found has only accelerated since Election Day. So I am not optimistic about the way in which this is playing out. I, I want to be, uh, because, you know, I believe in representative government. Uh, but I, I just, I don't think that a lot of folks realize just how dangerous our situation is. I visited Egypt in 2017. They had a coup uh, to uh, have the, in which the military overturned actually a democratically elected government of Mohammed Morsi, uh, who since died in in uh, government, uh, you know, military incarceration. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, considered to be a, an extremist. And, you know, it was just talking to to my friend there who I got to have dinner with. Uh, who was a, who was in the U.S. military as a career. He retired and, and just like seems crazy to think about democracy facing that kind of challenge. And so I think that the roles that technology has played and continues to play in all of this, it, there's been so many uh, unintended consequences. And again, shout out to the Social Dilemma documentary because there's a whole lot of things that that documentary points to, but some of it are these systemic issues with the ways in which um, – uh, the 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 information landscape operates the incentives that are there and the ways in which the folks are operating you know without 
without with our guardrails and and without regulation. And so these are going to be things that aren't going to be resolved in the next few weeks, and uh, it's going to continue to be challenging. So. Do you think we should go move on perhaps to some, some Apple news? Yeah, some I mean, Google news? yeah, this will be, uh, in fact, maybe we should just say this until the last 10 minutes anyways, but I'm much more excited to talk about the, the two sets of news. So let's start with Apple. Um, obviously big event yesterday. The promised release of Apple Silicon Max was yesterday. So, uh, quick summary. There are three new models. There's a MacBook Air. There's a MacBook Pro. There's a Mac Mini, and um, they have these new M1 chips. So I guess I'd start here, Wes. Any overall impressions from what you saw in the Apple event? Yes, absolutely. I, I watched the event tonight. It's not that long, actually. It's 48 minutes. I'll yep. say, number one, um, I think this is part. This is due to COVID. Like the last few Apple events we've had, not the last three in the last three weeks, but before COVID, I mean, they're trying to pack so much in, right? Because they've got so many different product lines. And as someone who does love the Mac and, you know, came to Apple a long time, a long, long time ago in like 1990, you know, 1995, probably I got my first Mac, something like that. Um, I'm really glad to see them. I'm inspired to see them giving so much uh, attention and an amplification for, of their work on Mac OS. I think it's probably a lot less expensive for them. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but but hosting these virtual events, I mean, they're doing incredible videos. And so even if if you just want to approach this as a student of videography and and marketing and the ways in which the top shelf, I mean, one of certainly one of the top shelf technology companies today is able to market their products, you know, take a look at these Apple uh, Apple videos. But I just I emerge from seeing it. I mean. This is again the like the not the culmination of Moore's law, but like processing power, being able to take the mobile processor, which is very lightweight in terms of power consumption, and being able to just do incredible things, the integration, and they do such a nice job with visuals and, and, and things in their in their presentations, explaining things that are really complicated that probably most of us are not going to fully grasp, you know, but trying to help us get our heads around it. It is really, really impressive and really, really exciting. Does this mean I need to run out and buy a new Mac? No, I'm going to wait till, you know, I'm up for a refresh, I guess, with my school or who knows what the future will hold for the Friars, you know, multiple years down the road. Cause I just got a new machine, uh, like a couple of years ago, uh, when we've been on like a five year cycle. So that wouldn't put me up, you know, very soon for that. But I do think about our daughter who, uh, has been using a super old MacBook Air. I'm talking about our 11th grader. And I'm thinking, man, that, you know, maybe that pro or even that Air, that's going to be a hefty machine for her to potentially tote to college here in a year and a half. And, and I'm, I'm confident, you know, take her through four years and beyond. Because eight cores, I mean, these. this was a dream in servers just a few years ago. And now we're saying everybody's machine can have it. And the the battery life, we're talking like 15 hours, 20 hours, 20 depending hours. on what you're doing. I mean, folks, that's more than most of us are awake. <laughs> and so you're really reaching an amazing point at speed and capability. They mentioned machine learning a lot in the keynote in terms of the neural engine. Um, and so I just, as, as somebody who definitely loves Apple and, and uses their products and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the fanboy here on the show. Uh, although I will note, Jason, that I love your background tonight coming to us from the Apple. What is it? What is it called? What do they call that? The, it's, you know, 
the UFO. It, it yeah, has, I it think has that, a name. That's, yeah, it, it has a name. It has a name. Anyway, it's it's the new it's the new Apple headquarters. But anyway, um, yeah, I just was was super inspired. But this is a transition. They are, you know, making sure that old systems are still running and it's going to be, it's going to be multi-year. Uh, but this was the first time I heard USB 4 mentioned. And I think that's kind of interesting. And anyway, it just, it just pushes the envelope of, of, of capabilities and, and what can be done. So, uh, Jason, I assume you are immediately putting all of the laptops in your home on eBay and, and going ahead and putting in for a new pro that'll be shipping to you next week. That's actually not a terrible idea because I think I could probably pick one up. Um, so I'm up for refresh at work. Um, and I had previously four years ago, five years ago, four years ago, um, had purchased a Surface Book. So that, that, that is my work laptop as a Surface Book. And part of the reason why I wanted to go in that direction was that I wanted to become more versed in Windows 10. So I carry a personal, Chromebook around. That's my 85% of the time. And then most of my work stuff is either done on a Chromebox or, uh, then I use that, uh, uh, that Surface Book. And I will say that, uh, for the first time in a very long time, um, I am pretty tempted by the MacBook Pro 13. So, um, I thought the price was, was very interesting. Um, I'm not wild about, uh, the limitations on RAM. Uh, I did, I did see finally that the, the entry level one, you can pay $200 more for, for eight more gigs of RAM to get to 16 gigs of RAM. I still find that, that the Apple tax for RAM to be completely and utterly ridiculous. Um, but a little bit did, like batteries used to be, right? Until yeah. they had a big hoopla, the batteries, were like ridiculous to just right exactly and that that's something that uh i i'm not particularly wild about but there were so many interesting things about what was announced yesterday that i think that might be what i go for uh uh, next there so a couple a couple thoughts about this the first one is that uh when you talk about uh um the, the, the new product lines. One thing I want to point out is that the Verge reported yesterday that based on a careful look at all of the specs of the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, the biggest differences between the two is really a fan. The MacBook Pro, uh, it, it includes a fan. Now I want to be careful about that because that sounds like it's being critical. It's really not. It's that, um, they expect MacBook Pro users to be more pro users, right? Power users. The, the specs are actually remarkably similar between the two platforms, but the reason why the fan is interesting is because, as The Verge points out, that the thermodynamics of, of the laptop really make a difference. And these M1 chips, the ARM-based Apple Silicon M1 chips, probably are very responsive to cooling. So if you expect to ever tax the MacBook, right? If you're doing video editing, um, even things like what, what, what Wes and I do on Wednesday nights to broadcast out via a, a, a web uh, a interface, those can be somewhat CPU intensive operations. If you do video conferencing, if you do any kind of content creation. So I'm probably in for a MacBook Pro. That's what I'm going to look at. I don't, um, I don't need a, uh, uh, a, a huge hard drive. I'm a cloud guy. Um, so the, the 256 gigabyte drive is, is more than enough for what I do since I tend to use, uh, a web-based, uh, cloud stuff, uh, 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 almost exclusively, but, but super interesting, um, uh, uh, a part of the event. I want to point out one other article. This is Lifehacker reported uh, yesterday that they were looking at, uh, kind of what wasn't said at the, uh, 
at, at, at the, the event, the hour long event. Um, and it's a couple of things that, that are, are, are worth mentioning. And a lot of these things have been echoed on Twitter in the last 24 hours too, which means I think there's some leeriness. First, when Apple tells you that it is, you know, 2%, 10%, 100%, 300%, 95,000% faster than X, Y, and Z, that means almost nothing in part because until these things are released, which they will be next week, right? So that they're, they'll be uh, uh, widely available next week. And they start putting together what this looks like uh, for the typical user. Then you really don't know what, what, what I'm sure this is going to feel speedy. I know that almost everyone is wildly impressed by the benchmarks in uh, these ARM based chips. So I am super uh, interested to find out what that looks like, but don't expect this to be a radical shift in speed, right? It probably will feel faster. I, and, and feel is a big part of this too, but it will feel faster. It probably will be faster, but don't buy too much into the Apple marketing about it being you know, infinitely faster than every other Windows alternative. There are some incredibly impressive uh, chips out by AMD right now that probably are competitive price-wise uh, to the Apple chips that are, are wildly fast that are going into laptops. Um, so that's one thing to remember. The second thing that Lifehacker makes the claim for, and I think this is a pretty important uh, piece, is that uh, even though the prices didn't drop on on the, the the Apple Silicon Macs, these new M1 chip Macs, you probably shouldn't buy an Intel Mac at this point. If you're buying a new Mac, even though uh, the 16-inch Mac uh, is still only uh, Intel, um, and obviously the the, uh, the Mac Pro. Um, the, the desktop machine is, is still going to be Apple, at least for the foreseeable future, along with iMacs. If you have an option to buy the new Apple Mac, buy the Apple M1 Mac as opposed to an Intel Mac, because that's where all of the attention is going to go, um, for, uh, Apple's development. And the one last thing I would also mention, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to have to make this decision probably until February or March, but generally speaking, there is a lot of um, uh, uh, unknowns about how the speed will feel for traditional applications on the platform, right? I did put an article in that uh, the the current uh, Microsoft Office beta for Mac is Apple Silicon compatible, so they're working towards having those kinds of productivity apps on there. But remember, for at least the foreseeable future, most productivity apps, certainly all entertainment apps, will have been written for the Intel Mac. Now they have a, a a a very clever way of converting that on the fly. You don't have to worry about that. Remember, Apple's been through a transition of platforms before. This is not their first time doing it. But remember, anytime you are converting on the fly like that, it's going to slow things down a little bit. So until everything is kind of native to the new M1 chips, then, you know, we'll have to see what that looks like. But uh, 16 to 20 hours of battery life, unreal. Um, the fact that uh, uh, you can get these beautiful new displays, uh, they call them P3 wide color displays, looks super awesome. Um, all these new integrated uh, pieces into the M1 chip itself, including more efficient networking, more efficient uh, uh, artificial intelligence processing, super awesome. And I hear the MacBook Pro with a fan, you don't you don't hear the fans. It's a, it's a noiseless fan that's part of that process. So really interesting stuff 
uh, in, in yesterday's uh, Apple presentation. I was just looking at our uh, local Apple store at Penn Square. Um, it'll be, I'll be curious that they're open for appointments. You can make a genius uh, bar appointment and you can, you know, pick up a, a device if you're going to be buying something. They had actually shut down, you know, our location along with a bunch of others because of COVID at one point. Um, this whole thing about immediately on, you know, just like the phone, just like the iPad, uh, and, and that, I mean, that's going to feel different. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm eager, eager to see. And I just, you know, I'm Apple's heart. Uh, their, their core has been the Mac from the beginning, right? The, the iPod and iTunes, you know, have skyrocketed and then the iPhone in, and now services are, are increasing. So. I, I think it's overall good news. That article that you did mention, I put into the chat, uh, from the, from Lifehacker, you know, it's the chassis and the design is pretty much the same. They just kind of slap yeah. the, the M1 processor into it. Uh, but that is a big deal. And this, this is also, you know, an, an evolutionary step forward. So it just depends. Peggy's, you know, up, uh, it sounds like to, to get a new machine. And depending on how old your machine is, I'll tell you what, you know, when, when our daughter, it's kind of like, what was the, the uh, oh, our son, uh, he purchased a car. He bought a Subaru last weekend and uh, he's been sporting the 2002 uh, Toyota Highlander that our families had. Uh, that's what he's been driving. So, you know, when you, you get a car that's uh, 2020 technology, you know, 18 years newer than your old one, uh, just depends on what you're, what you're driving uh, today. But I think, you know, battery life and capability. I mean, I, I love my MacBook Pro. Uh, it is, you know, really a phenomenal, phenomenal computer. So yeah, unless you're doing hardcore video editing and some, some serious compression work that just really taxes your processor, I think the air is going to be fine for you. And I definitely concur with what you're saying, Jason. I don't see any reason to buy an Intel Mac at this point. You're really not going to be leaving any software behind and you're really just getting the old technology and all of your iPhone apps are going to run on the new M1 chip. So hey, that's kind of cool too. Right. Absolutely. And, and I want to point out two other quick things here that I think are interesting. You, you just mentioned this a moment ago, but the Verge had a, a, a kind of a detailed explanation of this and I can summarize it. It's about that the M1 Max emphasize continuity over complexity. And that's a decision Apple makes, right? But one thing I would be very interested in is in the same way that the uh, iPad Pro has brought a kind of a new generation of designs, right? I mean, still a, you know, it's still a flat tablet, right? It's pretty hard to get away from that tablet form factor. In the same way, it's also hard to get away from a, from a laptop form factor, right? That Microsoft's been trying with, with the surfaces, but the bottom line is, is the laptop form factor sticks around because people like laptop form factors, right? But I would su suggest that in the near future, that uh, Apple is going to start to evolve pretty dramatically on the hardware side too, beyond what the internals are. And we might see some really interesting new um, uh, uh, evolutions on Mac hardware. I would also note, uh, going back to my will I buy, will I not buy uh, as part of my hardware refresh at work, I, I hate the touch bar. And I, it, it, it almost scared it well. And I would have bought a Mac a, a couple of years ago because I just, I like the function keys over the touch bar. I did have an on conversation with that and the other Mac person in my life, which is Mike Agustinelli, my partner in crime at work. And he said, you know, Knifer, here's the problem. 
you're probably the biggest keyboard shortcut guy I know, right? And he said that everyone talks about that keyboard shortcut people really like the touch bar. Now, I can get away from the touch bar by going with the Air, although I think I want the Pro, because the Air does not have touch bar. It's got the traditional function keys. And um, that that's a decision uh, I'll have to continue to ruminate over <laughs> in the next couple of months. And then, go ahead. The touch bar is not a big deal. I when I first got it, I was kind of like, eh, but it's kind of cool. I mean, it it pops up really mostly when I need it, and if I want to, I can change it. And I just it hasn't gotten in my way. Um, I don't know that it's you know it hasn't transformed my computing experience. But anyway, it'll be interesting if you end up getting one to see what your what your opinion how how that shifts as you you know you if you end up using it as a daily driver. And the other thing that's also interesting to me is that I have listened to, and I'm almost certain this was a, was a, a, um, a, a Mac Break Weekly uh, uh, episode months, maybe even years ago, that talked about that there are so many third-party apps that you can do that can really do some cool things with the Touch Bar, right? Adding a lot, uh, a lot more custom things, and that's kind of who I am, actually. My Chrome browser is really tricked out. Very, uh, I'm very particular about how I like that set up because. I'm very productive with that, and maybe the same thing applies. And then, oh, one other, one other thought for Peggy. Peggy's shopping to replace a 2013 iMac, the 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 um, uh, Mac Mini that got refreshed. I mean, it's still like I think it's seven hundred dollars, maybe six ninety nine, which I would love to be you know seeing that less. But I mean, as as large and inexpensive as you can get displays today, yep. if you don't need to be portable, I would I would look at um, what a very nice twenty seven inch, you know, thirty two inch, um, you know, four uh, K, um, you know, high, high res. I mean, maybe ten eighty. It's probably not good enough. You're probably going to want higher than that in terms of the graphics card. But that would – right now I'm, I'm working on a 27-inch iMac that's kind of old. I love the screen. It's amazing. But if it's going to be my own pocket, I mean, you compare to the – you know, price-wise, you're going to be able to get a much larger screen and drive that really well with a Mac Mini than, you know, if you're going to go full iMac. So right. if, you, if you don't need portability, I'd say look at that as a possibility. And one of the ways to hedge your bet is you can use, if you are using a 2013 iMac, you can use that in monitor mode, right? You can actually turn that into a, a monitor, buy the Mac Mini for now, uh, and use that to up, essentially upgrade the internals on it. And then when you're ready and, uh, when you're ready to upgrade to 4K, and I have to say, I did, I upgraded to 4K at home, um, about, uh, I don't know, six or so weeks ago. Uh, it was a birthday present to myself. It, this is not even a nice 4K monitor. It's just that it's a, a decently reviewed LG 4K monitor. It's 32 inches. Uh, super great. 4K is amazing. And it looks so, because, uh, 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 Mike at work has a 5k iMac and it looks beautiful. Wow. That's, that's good advice. Well, I would just also on that, I would say check in terms of your connections, because depending upon how old that iMac is, it may be fine as far as Thunderbolt, but it does, it does depend. So just, just make yep. sure that you, uh, you know, are going to have the right connection and uh, that, that it'll be able to, to drive it. But we've, I've definitely done that. We've got, you know, a teacher at school who does that and it's a phenomenal way to, to utilize another monitor, um, you know, and uh, you don't if, if you if you have the luxury, as sometimes we do at school, um, but you could at home possibly of having having that machine that you you know don't need to resell or get rid of. Yep. 
And then one other note that's that, and this is this was another thing that happened in the last twenty four hours that has it, it's 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 kind of in my mind uh, breathe some life into Apple. Roku is rolling out uh, AirPlay two and HomeKit compatibility for their newest smart TVs and streaming devices. And the, one of the reasons why I I, I kind of got away from Apple for a while is I felt like that there just wasn't a lot of options if you didn't want to pay the premium price for X, Y, and Z, right? Like the HomePods look super nice, but the problem with them is, is they're really expensive. And I, you know, I'm never going to be Steve Jobs sitting in my, you know, uh, a Berkeley apartment in the hardwood floors with my single bed and my, my hi-fi system with nothing else in the room. Famous photo from the early 1980s for Steve Jobs. I'm going to be a guy that's probably going to have a speaker in every room and wants to uh, uh, throw something up on my TV in my office or in my TV in my living room. And the fact that they're starting to figure figure out that they need to be a little more compatible with outside systems. That's a real sign of life for me inside of, of Apple itself. And everything they've announced in the last week has been, I, I have to say, pretty impressive to me. Now, does that mean I'm going to become iPhone guy um, uh, 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 and the Apple Watch, which I uh, hugely tempted in? Maybe. Um, I will tell you my Pixel 3a uh, died a couple weeks ago in a freak accident. Um uh, uh, and I, I, it's so bizarre. I'm not going to even mention, uh, what happened to it, but, uh, so I am back to, uh, uh, I have a Motorola phone. that's a year old. It's just, just fine. It's, it's one of their low end phones, but it's fine enough for now. I think I might be in the market for, um, for a new phone at some point. And I know Mike, Mike did buy the iPhone 12 pro, the high end iPhone 12. So he was up for an upgrade. So he's going that direction. We'll see. Kind of tempting, but, uh, you know, the will he, won't he, which I'm sure is not the kind of, of, of like drama that people are turning in for, but that's oh, no. something. They're here for the geek drama. <laughs> Make no mistake. <laughs> so we'll see. But again, very impressed. Um, and, uh, we'll have to see. Well, I want to get to the Google news, but, uh, maybe we'll hit another one before that. Uh, I put this one under miscellaneous. Uh, this is from NBC. It's, news, but it's an op-ed, which by the way, that, that's an important thing. Even as we talk with students, like, Oh, it's NBC news. There's a difference between the, you know, opinion pieces and, and the newsroom. Uh, the title is remote testing, monitoring, remote testing monitored by AI is failing the students forced to undergo it. This is from, uh, Shia Swauger, who's a librarian. This is from November 7th. We've talked about this on the show before, um, test proctoring, uh, software has been utilized extensively in our COVID era, not only by colleges, but also by many um, high school students uh, and high school teachers. Uh, but some of that proctoring, you know, penalizes students for trying to do things like get up to go to the bathroom, you know, reading questions out loud. Um, it can really increase anxiety, invade privacy. Uh, the College Board reports has abandoned plans to use proctoring software for its software in an upcoming exam because of technology barriers that it creates. Um, but this is a this is a big controversy and a big issue. Uh, the article reports that students at dozens of universities are petitioning to ban proctoring software. And I just say, um, you know, as a current classroom teacher, 
we got to think about assessment. We got to think about how it is that we try and measure what kinds of things are sticking in the brains of our students and what kinds of skills are they are they having? And certainly when you have large class sizes, that, you know, makes it much more challenging when it comes to authentic assessment. But, um, you know, I think this is an important article and I think that's an important issue as we continue to move forward in our covid era. Very much so. And, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned that I am keeping a large notebook, um, that at my desk, this is my, uh, this is my COVID post COVID discussion notebook, uh, which is uh, about halfway full now. It's a, um, it's a, a composition notebook, uh, that I've been writing things down in. One of the things I keep going back to is that I don't, I, I didn't really like especially early on when teachers were so stressed, the people that were starting to beat the drum about how education is this, this or that. But now that we're finding our stride here, I think, and that, uh, I mean, we don't quite see an end to this yet, but you know, we we're getting a better sense that there's going to be some kind of light at the end of this tunnel. I agree. That's one of the things we absolutely need to have a conversation about. Awesome. Hey, tell us about Google. What's up? Okay. Well, something really interesting happened today and it, uh, um, it's got some reverberations and I am starting to think about this maybe in a grander context. The first article that I ran to today was that Google photos is ending its unlimited free backup next year, citing growing demand for storage. And this comes from the good folks at nine to five Google. And for those of you unaware, Google photos had a really cool thing where you could put the app on your phone. It would upload all your photographs, not in their original quality, but in a high quality that frankly was uh, a good enough for photo storage. And it would just store all your photos. And so I personally have photos going back. Um, I was going to actually check this for sure, but, um, uh, I have quite a few photos that go back to, well, 2013 is looking at the timeline here, uh, that I must have first put this, um, on there. And in fact, looking at these now, um, these are a lot of, of photos from, from my phone. So I don't think these are things that I uploaded from elsewhere, but, um, that notion of, um, uh, that notion of, of unlimited phone or photo storage meant this was my go-to app. And in fact, I recommend it to everyone. Google Photos is an app that even if you're not a Googleite should be absolutely on your phone. So, um, that's gone now. And now it will, uh, 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 ping from your storage. Basically you get 15 gigs for free and then you can buy, I think the, the product keeps changing its name. I think it's Google One is the name of the product where you can buy storage. But the idea here is that the unlimited storage will be going away. So that then inspired uh, a couple other articles that were related to this. Um, Pixel 5 and below phones, which have always had free uh, uh, unlimited storage for those devices. Anything you upload from one of those phones, you get it in whatever the original quality is. So it doesn't even, it doesn't even scale back quality. That will continue forever on Pixel 5s and older, but no commitment from Google today about whether or not future Pixel phones will involve that. But then also, um, Google Sheets, Google Slides, and Google Docs will also now start counting towards your storage cap. And that, all very interesting decisions from 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 this standpoint. One of the reasons why I assumed Google was going in that direction was that, uh, you know, storage compared to 15, 20 years ago is relatively inexpensive. And in fact, unlimited is really where more people are going, right? The, the uh, availability of cloud-based storage. So whether you're talking about AWS or... Um, 
uh, Microsoft's uh, various storage products like Azure or Google has a huge cloud storage. Like storage is dirt cheap. And this notion that they're heading in that direction of limiting that and also counting more things against your storage is a fascinating development um, uh, for this. Um, so I guess I, I, I'd start with the question to you, Wes. Does this impact the way you use Google at all if suddenly you know, photos are not stored for free. Yeah, well, it does. I have been, well, I mean, I'm going to have to look at that and see what we subscribe to, right? In for the Apple ecosystem, uh, we pay for the family like one terabyte, which we're not, you know, chewing through half of yet. But, um, and we've got all the, we, I still have our photos on, you know, iCloud or whatever on, on dot Mac, whatever the heck you call it in, on, on Apple stuff. Um, but then I've, I, I, go ahead and, and send it over to Google. Google is phenomenal with AI, right? Facial recognition and, and just being able to find photos and pick stuff out. It's incredible. I mean, I use a Chromecast we do on, on several of our TVs and being able to have a, a dynamic smart photo album uh, that finds the faces of all the members of our family. There's like 3000 pictures in it and we're seeing pictures frequently. We're like, Oh my gosh, look at that. You know, we hadn't seen it because the AI has found that photo and we're, we are not being able, we wouldn't be able to get that kind of functionality today with, with, um, with Apple. The thing, the connection I make to it, Jason is what Google has done on the G suite education enterprise side with the enterprise level accounts, because until this fall, when you were a Google school, you get everything. It was just all free. And now you have to pay a certain amount per user in order to record your, your hangout meets and, you know, have other kinds of functionality. That's really one of the biggest things for us because we have, have used Google meets as our primary, you know, um, you know, school-wide video conferencing solution. And it's really, you know, either license that or license Zoom. And it was a lot more affordable. Plus we were just more invested, you know, we are invested in, in the Google infrastructure. There's other concerns about Zoom and, you know, uh, anyway, it's that that's a longer story. I, I think that there are folks at Google that are really focused on monetization. And that's what this sounds like to me, because like you said, uh, storage is very cheap. But Google's hooked us, you know, and I think this is part of their their plan all along. I'm not saying this as somebody that doesn't love Google. I do. I I, I really enjoy using Google products, and and I've drank the Kool Aid. And hey, I'm a Google certified educator level one. I got to take my level two test here at some point. But um, I do think that it is a difference in approach, and we're seeing it in on multiple fronts. So to me, it just sounds like you know, corporate monetization, which isn't, you know, shocking, but it, it does come perhaps as, as a unfortunate surprise to some of us who have, have really got used to having everything um, free from Google. Well, and it's interesting because that's kind of where as this has bounced, bounced around Twitterdom in the last couple of hours. A lot of outrage at the notion that you pulled us in with free X, Y, and Z. We put in our, some of our most precious data, right? Photos could be argued to be, you know, the most precious data we, 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 we generate on our smartphones. And now you're going to charge us to store that. And I think it's a fair criticism, right? I mean, I, I think that it, it's complicated. Um, 
the, the monetization of this, it also kind of harkens back to some things we've talked about, you know, in, in a couple weeks past that one of the big suggestions right now in, um, uh, one of the big suggestions that, that has been tossed around when we talk about the, the, monopolistic uh, accusations against Google is that they might have to split them up into different products. Maybe that's what this ends up being a part of, right? The Google photos itself becomes a separate product on its own. And then you've got to charge for it because otherwise, how do you do X, Y, and Z? And again, I think it's all complicated, but um, it's, it's, it's a little rough. I think that's, that's a really good dot to connect because we've talked for months about the technology correction and where this is going and where this is heading. And, uh, you know, I personally hope that our legislators are, are smarter than to just say, oh, let's just break up Google. You know, that's going to be what what we need to do. But we covered it on the show a couple of weeks ago. There is an antitrust, um, you know, court case right now that is up against Google. And one of the outcomes of that could be, you know, breaking up Alphabet. And so, yeah, that that is you, you just really wonder what the the whiteboards in the war rooms at Google, you know, have on them in terms of the forecast that their leadership sees for you know, politically in the United States and, you know, what, whatever directions the, the, the uh, political winds happen to blow in the United States, it does appear that we are headed for a technology correction. Thank you, Dr. Neifer. And so I think it's a uh, good, those are, those are good dots to connect. Again, this is where like you hear these articles, you're like, what's up with that? And then you, you hear different things. You're like, Hmm, this is interesting because Google hasn't come out and said, and they may not come out and say, we've made a very large change in our approach to our products. And we're going to be, you know, trying to monetize in, in multiple ways. And that makes sense that if they're going to be broken into different pieces, they're going to need to be independently profitable and they can't, you know, simply you know, use the, 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 which anyway, it's part of the magic and, and power of Google has been their ability to fund some really, you know, kind of crazy and, and somewhat outlandish things because they had such a, such a great, uh, you know, basically uh, printing machine for money. And Microsoft yep. kind of did the same thing with, with windows and office for years, right? They were able to, they could have, you know, they, they, I don't think Microsoft has innovated historically nearly as much as Google has, but those are good dots to connect and, you know, we'll have to see, but it is, it's going to, I'm pro, I mean, as Becky said, hopefully the prices on the storage are not going to, you know, go up too high. Um, because, you know, what they want is a subscription. This is what Apple wants. This is what most companies want. They want a regular piece of your budget and my budget every month. Oh, that's all, you know, that's what music, music streaming is doing. That's what Netflix does. Uh, and this is why to your point, I think in a geek of the week a while back, we should be auditing on a personal basis all of those subscriptions because they can really add up and you may not even realize, Oh my gosh, I've been, you know, bleeding, you know, X amount of dollars to, to this company or whatever uh, for years. It could be if you don't do an audit of, of those things. Yep, absolutely. Well, um, I we have other stuff, but uh, we are very close to the top of the hour. I will say coming up next week on the Antic Situation Room, we will have some additional news about uh, ARM processors that are likely to be rolled out in 2021 on Chromebooks. I also would like to talk a little bit about YouTube Premium, although that will be a Geek of the Week piece for me as well. And we will have some additional information about the complexities of teaching information literacy in 2020. So, Wes, what's your Geek of the Week? 
Well, I have three, uh, but they're all videos, and I'll go quick. Uh, first one, uh, heard about this one at the Northeast Council for Media Literacy Conference this last weekend. This is Esther, I'm not going to say her name right, probably, Wojciki. Uh, I think she's 80 years old now, but she has written some fantastic books, and her TEDx Berkeley presentation is called The Student as CEO of Their Life and Learning, and it is outstanding, and really, um, you know, if you watch it, I think will echo a lot of things that many of us are championing in terms of pedagogy and instructional strategies for getting out of the way of students, empowering students, and, you know, enabling students to be much more in control of their learning and uh, much more empowered and much less focused on following directions and, you know, being that guide on the side that, you know, we hear about a lot. Second one is uh, a video from Claire Wardle, and it's called Can You Outsmart a Troll by Thinking Like One? And this is a TED-Ed video. If you're not familiar with the TED-Ed series, it's fantastic. Teachers come up with ideas, and then the professional team at TED-Ed makes a very snazzy and professional video. And this is very timely as we talk about disinformation and being able to spot a troll. That's like something we need to be able to do. Um, or outsmarting a troll, I guess. And then the last one uh, is on my t- watch list. I haven't watched the whole thing yet. But when we talk about the tech correction, um, the Aspen Institute hosted a panel discussion in June, which was called Showdown, Free Speech and the Internet. And this goes to the heart of tech correction issues in terms of what will our legislators or will our legislators, you know, require the tech platforms to be responsible for the content on their platforms? What are the limits of free speech? You know, should Twitter and Facebook be, you know, moderating and, and, and um, you know, censoring content? I definitely think they should. I think every platform should. If you don't, you're going to have a complete cesspool and you still have, you know, elements of that no matter, how, you know, especially when you're at scale in the way that they are. So those are three videos. How about you, Dr. Neifer? I would like to share a deal. I feel like I may be the only person on earth that subscribes to YouTube Premium and more about YouTube Premium next week. But if you are a YouTube Premium customer, uh, Google has announced that they will send you a $100 Stadia Premier Edition bundle, which includes a Chromecast Ultra and a Stadium controller. We've talked about Stadium in the past, not because it has a real education application, but because I think it's a sign of what's to come in regards to computing. Stadia is the streaming service that Google provides. It allows you to stream games to a Chromecast and then play them in real time using a controller. $100 value, free for Google Premium users. This is the third or fourth time I've received free hardware from Google because I'm a YouTube Premium subscriber. And I want to talk more about my experience next week about YouTube Premium. I think it's the best $10 I spend every single month. So, Wes, we're at the end of the podcast. Where can people find you on social media? Well, I am on Twitter at W Fryer. Uh, I am sharing probably more on my um, uh, curriculum site these days, uh, updating lessons there for mainly my media literacy classes at mdtech.cassidy.org. I, you know, foolishly claimed that I would be blogging on a daily basis <laughs> a few <laughs> weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. I think I was, you know, I don't smoke for the record. I never have. But I was not thinking clearly when I said that. And so anyway, sometimes I will be sharing things on speedofcreativity.org. I actually am due probably to do a post about the social dilemma and things that we learned hosting our parent university as well as discussing that in other formats. So I heard a rumor that you are still involved with NCCE in a fairly significant way, Dr. Neifer. I am. I, while well, on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, I also uh, help out with social media and conference stuff at uh, NCCE, the Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.nc. 
CCE.org. And probably the best place to find me is Twitter, though. That's where I tend to post uh, information about uh, tech and stuff that I'm reading. But this here is the Tech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights, 8 p.m., Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. If you don't want to join us live, although please join Peggy George in our chat room each and every week by watching us live. If you can't, though, feel free to find our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can also go to our website at techsr.com, find the links from this week's uh, episode, the show notes, which Wes lovingly puts together each and every week, and then also download tiny MP3 versions of the show if that's your fancy. You can also find us on YouTube and Facebook, where archives of our shows exist. We hope you stay safe out there. Please stay safe and savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.